0: You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Let's talk about judges. It's a new semester. Uh, New year, new student union, new series (laughs) through, uh, not a new book of the Bible, it's an old book of the Bible. We're going to take the spring semester and we're going to work through the Old Testament book of Judges. And I want to begin by sharing something with you. Um, I've been recently getting into yoga. (laughs) Hot yoga. Hot yoga. Real hot yoga. So I, I've, been, I've, been, I've been enjoying this, but last fall, a friend of mine wanted to, wanted to take me with them and, and to try it out. And I, I knew nothing about yoga. I, I, I'm still a novice. And, uh, but I asked my friend the night before we were going to go do this yoga thing in the morning, I said, okay, this is an honest question, and it might be insulting. I've never done yoga before, but is it like even a workout? Because I like sweating, I like when I work out, like I want to like work out, and time i 've ever seen yoga, it 's just these poses like that can 't be hard and He just laughed at me, and so then we go to real hot yoga the next morning, and during the workout, I almost throw up twice <laughs> because it is so intense, and every muscle in my body was hurting and I begin that way because I, my guess is is that some that story is going to describe some of y'all's experience with the book of judges. You may be unfamiliar with it. You've never really kind of checked it out before, but as you get into it, you're probably going to want to throw up. Because the book of judges just happens to be probably the most challenging, bizarre, insane, and graphically violent books of the Bible. If you were to go home and just read through the book of judges tonight, you would read a, a story about a woman who takes a tent spike and hammers it through a guy's face. Uh, You would come across a story where an evil king has a bowel movement on the floor as a result of getting stabbed in his gut in the Bible. And um, you would read a story about a guy having his eyeballs carved out of his head. You would uh, hear a story about A 1,000 people taking refuge in this temple, which is functionally a church, and then their leader locking the door from the outside and then setting it on fire. Uh, You would read a story about uh, an Israelite militia that decapitates two guys and then walks around holding their heads by the hair as like trophies, it's like Quentin Tarantino meets Game of Thrones, and it's in the Bible. It's just gruesome, it's, it's disturbing, it's not for the faint of heart. So why are we doing this? Why would we look at, through the Book of Judges? Here's why. It's because I want RUF to uh, put our money where our mouth is. We say every single week in RUF... Uh, that we want this to be a safe place where anybody can come and explore the truth claims of, the Christ- of Christianity with us. And, and our approach is, we don't want you to just take our work, word for it. Don't just take Matt's word for it. We want you to come and see for yourself. And so every single week we open up the scriptures. But if we're going to have any intellectual integrity, we can't just pick the parts of scripture that we like, and then avoid the uncomfortable parts. If we're going to explore what the Bible actually says, that means we've got to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly, and this semester happens to fall under the ugly. Last semester, we talked about dating and love and butterflies, and this semester, it's bowel movements and um, blood and guts. And so here's what I want to do tonight. I I want tonight to kind of function a little bit like just a, a, an on-ramp onto this thing that we're going we're gonna to explore the rest of the semester. This is going to be kind of an introductory thing. We're going to just look at the big picture. And, and I want to uh, just do two big ideas with you tonight that I want to look at. I want to look at the problem of this book and then the point of this book. So the problem with it and then the, the point of it. So let's begin with the problem and, and I really feel like before we can get any headway into this book we've got to overcome this hurdle on the, on the front end which is really the context the, the background of the book of Judges is God tells his people Israelites to go into this land that isn't theirs it's called the land of Canaan and he wants them to wipe out and drive out the people that are living there. He, he, this is, this is God sanctioned warfare. He wants them to go in there and drive these people out. In fact, you even see this in verse 1. This is the big question as the opening of this book uh, begins. It says, who should go up first to fight against the Canaanites? That's, that's the background. And I think that's kind of a big problem. It's that We should address the elephant in the room. How in the world can a god of love command violent military campaign of his people? That's the problem. So I, I want to try to offer two responses, two solutions, perhaps, to why in the world God would do this, why this is a thing. Here's solution number one, or response number one, I'll say. Response number one is don't make the mistake that the Canaanites were sweet, innocent people. If you read other passages in the Bible, if you look at anything in history, the Canaanites were monsters. They uh, Sexually, they, they were kind of crazy jacked up. They were having sex within their nuclear families, so there was incest going on. They were having sex with animals, so there's bestiality going on. They would have uh, orgies at their religious gatherings. And probably the biggest uh, thing that they were doing that was so uh, horrendous was that they would sacrifice their children to their gods. They would take their infants and put them on the altar of their god, Melech and they would burn their infants alive to try to please their gods, to try to get the attention of their gods. These were, this was a, a whole culture that was sexually perverse, that was unjust, that was dangerous. And so when God tells the Israelites to go in there and to, to conquer them, to drive them out, theologians say what is happening here is this thing called intrusion judgment, Now, this might get a little weird for just a second, but if you think about the end of time, the Bible talks about this thing called a judgment day where everybody will stand before God as their judge and he will judge you and give you what that you deserve. A couple of times throughout the Bible, there's this weird thing that happens where end time judgment day stuff kind of gets injected into the present tense. That's what's happening here. God is saying, Israel, I want you to go in and I'm gonna use you as the instrument to inject future judgment into the present tense. Tense. Now, here's where I sh- you can even see this in the text. Look at verse four. The Israelites invade the city called Bezek. And the ruler of that city is this guy named Adonai Bezek, which in Hebrew just means the Lord of Bezek. Fun name. He gets captured. And what do the people of Israel do with them? Well, you heard it. Verse six, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. You're six verses into this book and there's already thumbs getting chopped off. I told you it was crazy. Why in the world did they do that? Well, look what his response is. Look at verse seven. He says, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. So here's what he's saying. Here's this evil Canaanite lord guy, and anytime he captures another king, he would cut off that person's thumbs or their big toes to kind of incapacitate them and to shame them and to humiliate them. And he did this over and over and over and so when the Israel comes he gets what he's been doing to everybody else. And he gets it. He realizes, I'm getting what I deserve. I'm having to drink my own medicine. So That's response number one. God is using the Israelites as an instrument of future judgment on a very wicked group of people. This is a one-time, temporary, very clear thing that God was commanding to do. So that's response number one. Here's response number two. The reason why God tells them to go in there and do this is because God wants complete and exclusive allegiance to him. When he tells Israel, I want you to go into this land and get rid of these people, I also want you to get rid of their altars and their gods. And the reason why I want you to get rid of all their gods because if you live in a society with all these other gods, you will be tempted to drift away and to worship them. God is not content to share their hearts with other gods in the same way that he is not content to share your heart. He wants all of your heart exclusively for him. That's the reason why he tells them to wipe all these things out. Now, I don't know if you're at all familiar with the TV show uh, The Office, but there's a uh, character in The Office named Andy, and in this particular season, he's engaged to Angela. Now, Angela is having a secret affair with Dwight Schrute, who is kind of The Office nerd, I guess, and Andy does not know about this. Everybody else in the office knows about it, but Andy eventually finds out that she's been cheating on him, and so he confronts her. She comes clean, and, he is kind of, and he, he's quiet, and he goes back into the office to confront Dwight. Now, Dwight at this point knows that Andy is coming to confront him, so Dwight comes out the door ready to confront Andy. So here the two come together, and here's what they say. Andy says to him, it's over. And Dwight says, good, she broke up with you. And Andy goes, no, it's over between you two. No way, I am not giving up. You have to. No, I don't. She doesn't love you. She's marrying me. And Dwight says, well, I don't know about that because she certainly seems to enjoy making lovemaking with me. And then Andy says, I am telling you to back down. And Dwight says, and I'm telling you that I will never back down. Then I will make you. Really? How are you going to do that? Through the use of force. That is very general. It does not scare me in the slightest. (laughs) And Andy says, I will fight you. And Dwight says, okay, fine, good, a duel. The winner gets Angela. What is your weapon? And Andy says, my bare hands. And Dwight says, that is stupid. I will use a sword (laughs) and cut off your bare hands. (laughs) Now, all throughout the Bible... God pictures himself as this fiancé that we constantly keep cheating on over and over and over. And just like Andy, he doesn't just sit on the sidelines and is cool with it. He actually stands up and fights for us. He He does not want your heart shared. He wants all of you. That's what love is. Love is I am not content to share you with other people. I mean, think about this. Let's just say that your boyfriend that you've been dating for a while... He drops the L-bomb on you. I love you. And let's just say that you find out he's been spending the same amount of time and energy and attention with three other girls in his life. And In fact, he's told each of them, I love you. My guess is when you, if you were to hear that, you would not be cool with that. You, You would feel betrayed. You would, you would, uh, feel rightly angry. And that's not the response of like an obsessive, controlling, needy girlfriend. That is the response of love. If we love each other, I, I want all of your devotion. That's what love is. If you get married and you have another lover on the side, you are going to have a crappy marriage. In the same way, if you tell God, I love you, and I'm devoted to you, I'm committed to you, and yet you have these other gods on the side that you love and worship, you're going to have a crappy relationship with God. God does not want to share you. He wants all of your heart exclusively for him. Because that's what love desires. So that's the problem. The problem is... God commands Israel to go on this military conquest and get rid of these Canaanites, and I've tried to offer two solutions, uh, two responses. One is that you've got this intrusion judgment thing, but then also, secondly, God wants all of your heart exclusively devoted to him. I don't know if that ties up all the loose ends. I know it's a big problem, but there you go. For the second time, that's my attempt at trying to address the elephant in the room. So let's go to the second thing. What's the point of this book? Why is it in the Bible? Um, Y'all remember the movie um, Saving Mr. Banks? Yes. Yes. I heard some yeses, some whisper yeses. Um, Saving Mr. Banks is the story of how Walt Disney... um, um, (laughs) Poor poor Nicholas, so awkward. Uh, Saving Mr. Banks... (laughs) I can't tell him I said that. I know. Dang it. I recorded this. I'll I'll edit it. I'll edit it from the record. So back to Saving Mr. Banks. Saving Mr. Banks is the story of how Walt Disney wanted to bring the story of Mary Poppins to to the movie screen, right? He had been pursuing the the author of this story. It was P.L. Travers. Uh, for 20 years about getting this story on the, on the uh, movie screen. And you find out as the movie goes on uh, that her father was an alcoholic, that uh, his alcoholism just kind of wrecked their family, and he, and he essentially um, drank himself to death. And she did not want Walt Disney to take her deeply personal story and sentimentalize it into a silly musical with like chimney sweeps and animated penguins which is what he did but he, he, he was fighting for the story because he, he was telling her was like look we have got to write the story <laughs> hey man <laughs> you can fill him in um, <laughs> So he he was saying, we've got to take your story, but we've got to rewrite it in such a way where we save the father, where we save your father. We have got to tell your story, but we've got to write it. We've got to fix it. And he tells her in the story, this is what art is. This is why we need art, because we need art to restore order with the imagination, now, here's what I think is fascinating about this. Both Disney and P.L. Travers had a different instinct about this particular story. P.L. Travers was said, I want this story that honors my pain. I want a story that is honest. I want a story that is real and that is messy, and it needs to honor what is true. And the Book of Judges honors that instinct. This is one of the reasons why the Book of Judges is so gory and it's so gruesome is because it is unbelievably honest about how damaged we are and how messy we are. But then you have Walt Disney who, who was like, we need to take this story because we need salvation stories. We need stories that, where bad things get fixed. We need stories where, where things get made right. And that's what the book of Judges does as well. On the other hand, you see... The grace of God and the love of God displayed in this book, almost like nowhere else in the Bible, because you see a God that is unrelenting in his love and his pursuit of people that are crazy and that are jacked up. You have to have both of these things come together. As, so if you picture it like an airplane. An airplane has two wings, and you have to have both wings in order for the thing to fly. Wing number one is you could say it kind of represents this, that you have a great need for a savior. And wing number two is, you have a great savior for your need. I do not think that your life will make sense to you unless those two fundamental realities come to rest at home in your heart. Life will not make sense to you, uh, and your life will really not fly unless you have both wings. If you have no, no wings, your plane doesn't fly. If you only have one wing, if you say... I'm really jacked up, I'm really a sinner, I'm really messed up, but you don't understand the love of God, then you're, you're not going to fly. And if you think God is a God of love, he's my best friend, he's my homeboy, he's my buddy, but you don't understand your, your capacity for evil, then your life's not going to fly either. You have to have both. I have a great need for a savior and I have a great savior for my need. And in fact, both of these things are, are right here in this opening, this opening section. Let me show it to you real quick. I didn't have uh, Ben read all of this because it would have been too long and all the names are are crazy. But um, I want you to just see how badly Israel failed. Look at verse 27. It starts going through these various tribes of Israel. It says Manasseh. That's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It says Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. They fail. Look at verse 29. Ephraim, another um, uh, tribe of Israel, did not drive out the Canaanites. Fail. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Fail. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Fail. Uh, Look at verse 33, Naphtali, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants over and over. This is how chapter one begins. They failed, they failed, they failed. God said, drive them out, and they didn't do it. And then here's the big summary statement at the end of chapter two, or uh, chapter two, verse two. Uh, At the very end of that, God says, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? Even though the backdrop of the book of Judges is the wickedness of the Canaanites, what the real focus of the book is, is how jacked up and rebellious and resistant and disobedient God's people are. They have a great need for a savior. The book of Judges is unbelievably honest about how capable of evil and error and failure we are, especially good Bible believing religious people like the Israelites. I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. Uh, uh, Yehiel Denur. He was a prisoner in uh, Auschwitz in the 1940s. Uh, Lived through the Holocaust, survived it, and and he he was brought in as a witness in one of the uh, criminal trials against Adolf Eichmann, who, in this is in 1961, Adolf Eichmann was one of the German officers that was responsible for deporting and murdering thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish people. And Denur, this guy that survived the concentration camps, he gets on the witness stand and in the middle of his testimony has this breakdown. And he's weeping, he, he loses control, and he, and he passes out and he can't finish giving his testimony. He's taken out of the courtroom. And the trial goes on. Uh, Eichmann was eventually um, found guilty. He was executed a year after this. So 1961, when the trial happened. In the mid-1980s, this guy, Deneur, gets interviewed by Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. And Mike Wallace is sitting down with him and he says, hey, can we go back to that scene when you were in the courtroom and you broke down. What, what was going on there? What happened inside of you? Were you just overcome with hatred? Was it, were you just overwhelmed with the amount of kind of the horrible memories inside of you? Like, what, what was happening in you? And DeNure said, uh, no, it wasn't any of those things. He said, when I saw Adolf Eichmann walk into the room, I realized he didn't look like this evil supervillain. Like I guess in his mind, he was thinking in some way he looked like like the despicable me, like bad guy, like obviously this is an evil guy, but he said he was just an ordinary guy like me. And quote, he says, quote, I had a breakdown because I became afraid of myself. I realized I am capable of everything he's capable of. I am just like him. In fact, I think that's one of the agendas of the book of Judges. It's to get you to a point where you actually become afraid of yourself. Where you get to a point where you start to ask God to protect you from you. I mean, has this happened in your life yet? Have you gotten to the point where you realize that you are, you are your greatest enemy? That, that you are the one that is trying to sabotage your best interest and you continue to do so over and over? That there's, there really is something inside you that's trying to ruin you. Do, have you realized that about yourself yet? Think about, just think about why we do New Year's resolutions, which I'm all for, but why do we do it? I think it's because we realize I'm doing things that I don't like and that are destructive, so I want to change. I want to eat better. I want to sleep more. I want to exercise more. I want to put my phone down. I want to read the Bible more. I want to try to be more patient. We realize we're doing things that are destroying ourselves and January 1 gets here and we're like, I'm going to stop. And so we stop and you know as well as I do what happens in like three weeks, right? You're like, but I love the stuff that keeps destroying me. Why do we have this thing inside of us that keeps pulling us towards the thing that's sabotaging our own life? It's because you're your greatest enemy. And the book of Judges is, is, tr- is trying to invite you to be honest about the darkness inside you. That's, but that's just one wing, though. That's, if you only had that wing, that would be depressing. If the, book of, if the point of the book of Judges was, you have a great need for a savior, period, let's close in prayer, that would be, you'd feel hopeless. But that's not the only wing. Look at God's response to their failure and failure and failure and failure. This is chapter two, look at verse uh, one. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He has said, he's saying you have disobeyed me, you have failed me, you have not trusted me, but I'm not, and I will never break my covenant with you. In other words, you have cheated on me, but I'm not gonna break up with you. My love for you is a love that will not let you go, no matter how many times you run, how many times you break my heart, no matter how many times you fail. I will always and forever never forsake you. (coughs) That's the point of this book, is to take those two realities. You have a great need for a savior, but you also have a great savior for your need, and it's to put them together in vivid, graphic, unforgettable stories So that maybe the love of God would actually become alive to you. Like I could stand up here, and I will, and I do, every single week and tell you that God loves you. God loves you. And it does have the potential to just kind of bounce off of you and you just leave here and you go to the library and do your next thing. And it's like, okay, whatever, God loves me, doesn't matter. But if you stick around RUF this semester and you hear story after story after story of how much we screw up and fail and yet how much God continues to give love and grace and forgiveness and mercy, those two things have the capacity to come together and it's almost like a nuclear spiritual reaction inside of you to awaken you to the love of God in a fresh and a vivid way. And that's what changes you. It's an experience of love. This uh, over the break, my family we went and saw the new Grinch movie in this kind of bougie movie theater that we were checking out. And if if you've um, you know it's it's this newer it's this newer Grinch kind of version of the old classic. And so the Grinch goes in and he steals Christmas. It's kind of to be expected. But what I thought was interesting about this movie is it gives you a little a little window into why the Grinch is the Grinch. It gives you this little flashback that when he was a little when he was a little Grinch, a little, a little whatever he was. I guess he wasn't a Grinch then. He was a little green thing. And Christmas time was the time where everybody was happy and they were with their families and he was alone. And he was by himself. And so Christmas is this kind of trigger for him. It's this painful kind of trigger about it, like triggering him these painful memories from his childhood. And so he hates Christmas, and he goes in and he tries to steal it. And so he goes in and he steals all the stuff, and he goes back to his little hideout, and he looks to see how they respond. And the next morning, all the people, what is this, Whoville? All the people of Whoville, uh, they come out, and they gather around the tree, and they don't have any presents. All their their cold Christmas has been destroyed, and they just gather and they start singing. And he sees this and his heart begins to move. And he begins to regret what he has done. And so he goes and he tries to return all of the stuff to the people of Whoville. And Cindy Lou, Cindy Lou Who, she invites him to come over with her family for Christmas dinner. She invites her enemy into her house for dinner. And then when she gets there, she she invites him to sit at the head of the table. So she doesn't just host her oppressor and her enemy. She honors him. And he is so overwhelmed by this. This is towards the end of the movie. This is amazing. He, he says, I want to give a toast. And so he stands up in this room full of people that he just robbed on Christmas. And he, and he says, your love and your kindness have changed me. And I'm sitting there watching the Grinch. And I'm like, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus does. Because it's not retaliation and getting him back what changes him. What changes him is he had an experience with love. Be an experience with grace. If you are going to be changed, the way that you're going to be transformed is not through New Year's resolutions, which are a great idea to do. I think you should do them. The way that that you're you're going to be changed is not through just trying harder and setting more goals and being more disciplined, which are all good things. The way that someone becomes changed is they have an experience with love. They have an experience with grace. That's what the book of Judges holds out for you. It holds out for you A very uncomfortable invitation to be honest about the darkness and the evil that you're capable of and at the same time showing you that God loves you and he's for you. Here's how Paul put it in the New Testament. In in Romans chapter uh, five, he says this, God demonstrates his love for us in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died. That's the book of Judges in a nutshell. Jesus doesn't come and die for good people. He dies for bad people. Bad people like you and me. And that's what makes the gospel good news. He does not love you because you're lovely. He loves unlovable grinches in order to make them lovely. And this love is a love that will not let you go. And it's so strong and it's so intense and it never runs out that it keeps coming for you no matter how bad you have been no matter how often you have messed up, and it keeps coming for you no matter how little you appreciate it to begin with even after you've received it. It keeps coming. So let me end with this. Um, One of my favorite authors of all time is this guy named Eugene Peterson. He was a pastor for like 30 years. He's written tons of books, articles. He was a seminary professor for a while. He, uh, he's the guy that translated the Bible into modern language, the the Message, which is awesome. If you if you're, if you're uh, familiar with the Message, it's his stuff. He passed away this past uh, October, which was super sad, huge kind of blow to the church as a whole, losing an awesome man. Um, his son gave like the speech at his memorial service, and you can read this online. This is, this is really fascinating. His son stands up. He's this, you know an older. I guess a middle-aged man now. Uh, but his son said this. He said, um, uh, my dad really only had one sermon. My dad had only one message. You know, Despite decades of creativity and sermons and books and articles, he said, really, he only had one message. That was his little secret. He only had one message. And he says, quote, uh, it's almost laughable how you fooled them, dad. How for 30 years, every week, you made them think you were saying something new. But dad, I knew your secret. I knew that you only had one message because you would come into my room and tell it to me every night when I was in bed. The same message over and over, which is this. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. That's the one message of the book of Judges as well. And if you stick around the semester and you hear these crazy, whack, you know, just like nutso stories, what you're really gonna hear over and over and over is God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. And maybe as you hear it and you see it and you experience it, maybe you'll begin to believe it and be transformed by it. That's my hope and that's my prayer. And that's my invitation. Let me pray. Father, I pray as we start a new semester and a new year that you would, you would wake us up to the, the realities inside us that we're uncomfortable with. Would you wake us up to things that we are capable of, that we would be horrified about, and yet I pray at the same time that you would wake us up to your great love and your forgiveness, that you extend grace upon grace, grace that abounds even above and beyond our capacity to fail. We thank you that you love us, and I pray that as a result of this semester, we might actually begin to drive it deeper into our heart. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.